Hello, and welcome to the What's Next podcast. My name is Liz Smith, owner of Liz Smith Law, and on this show, I share conversations to investigate building and leaving your legacy, estate planning for young families, supporting aging loved ones and parents, and other topics around aging, death, and other life transitions that will affect each of us. This is your source for hard-to-find resources in Southeast Alaska and beyond. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get each and every episode of our show. Welcome, Karen. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you, Liz. It's nice to meet you. You too. Do you want to start just by introducing yourself? Sure. Um, So I'm Karen Salama McCain, and I live in Philadelphia with my three children growing rapidly. Um, I have a 17 year old. He's getting ready for college in a year, a 15-year-old, and an 11-year-old. I have been in the behavioral health field for a long time and and love it. I really started in residential work, so um, residential programs for kids and families with behavioral health or like serious communication issues. And then when I started having young children, you know, about 17 years ago, and also started caring for my parents at the same time. They literally moved in with me at that time. I knew I couldn't do like that 24-7 on-call anymore that a residential program requires. So I pivoted into K-12 education and um, really did the same thing, sort of ran all of the behavioral health interventions, the culture and climate um, strategies, and all those soft skills for the adults to help, you know, forge better communication with students and with coworkers. And um, and now I run Go Hively, which is um, my consulting agency with, that partners with schools, but also with healthcare organizations too, to help people build up the buffers against stress and burnout. So that's where I'm at now. Great. Sounds like lots of interesting things to do and passions. Yes. And I heard about or heard of Karen through a blog post. Uh, Chip Conley has a blog I read every day, and he often has guests guests who post. And I've actually, I don't know if I told you this, Karen, but I've had another uh, guest on the podcast who I found through his blog. Yay. Really great. Elder Academy is the best. Yes. Yeah. And I hope to touch on that. So (laughs) Chip's done a lot in his life, but the blog kind of is through the Modern Elder Academy that we can touch on. And the post that you wrote, well, I'm going to ask you to read it because I want to share it with our audience. And since our guests are listening, I think Mm -hmm. why not provide it there? And you have agreed to read it in your own voice, which I'm really excited about. But let, I'll just let it speak to itself if you want to dive in. Sure. Sounds good. So the blog post is called Launching My Father at the End of His Life. My eldest child, Vaughn, was eight months old when I needed to return to work. Those first few weeks of dropping him off were so stressful. He'd bawl as I was leaving, and I'd worry about the long-term emotional damage I was causing him. Fortunately, I had a wise support network, friends, daycare staff, an abundance of literature and shared stories, normalized my fears and provided guidance. They taught me a vital lesson about separation anxiety. The more comfortable I was in letting him go, the easier it would be for him. But when it came to launching my parents at the end of their lives, 
that same communal wisdom wasn't there. I didn't know what to expect in those final days. I hadn't heard stories from my community of friends, and I didn't have articles full of strategies for coping with death at home. How can we each help each other nurture loved ones at end of life, just like we do at start of life? How do we share the wisdom of what it really means to help someone go peacefully? If only the sandwich generation referred to eating some really good sandwiches. Right around the same time that I was agonizing over leaving my son at daycare, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. My mom and dad, Irish and Egyptian, had been residing in Mexico since retirement, living their best life. But given the circumstances, my dad needed help. We needed, we decided to move in together to create an old school multi-generational household. After my mom died, my father's health issues and overall functioning seriously declined. Lung cancer, surgery, and then a broken hip confined him mostly to a wheelchair. At the same time that COVID hit, he began to need full-time care and I stepped back from work to provide it. I learned all sorts of new skills like how to transfer him from the chair to his bed when he was too exhausted to stand up. I purchased assistive gear like silverware with an angled large grip to make it easier for him to feed himself. Then one day, too exhausted and weak to transfer to the toilet even with my help, his legs gave out from under him and he broke his shin and calf bones. He went to the hospital for an x-ray and returned home the same day to recover, or so we thought. The following 10 days leading up to his death brought a roller coaster of emotions and experiences. Separation anxiety struck in letting go of my dad too. What I didn't realize until that 10 day journey was that separation anxiety would be a thing at end of life too. Anxiety about letting him go turned into questioning the medical team's guidance about his prognosis and what kind of care he needed. I feared that I was harming him or hastening his death. Even though the nurses that worked with my father were extremely savvy, there was no way to know when he first broke his leg that he would die 10 days later. He wasn't eating or drinking or communicating much in the first few days, and I was told that was normal given the morphine he was on for pain and that he would likely rebound soon. Then the language from the nurses started to turn, incorporating fair warning that this could be the end for him. If theirs were the only voices, I might have just accepted that it was his time to go. But of course, for this thinker, I was rolling out alternative explanations in my head and also listening to some of the doctors in my family. And those voices were saying things like, he doesn't need morphine for pain management at this point, and he's so drugged that he can't drink. He's dehydrated. That's why he's declining. Stop the morphine. Or other thoughts or voices were, he'll die if you keep giving him morphine. He could have more time left. The nurses, on the other hand, were gently telling me things like, if you take away the morphine, you're going to take away his comfort. Here's, he's near the end. This was the key moment where my anxiety about letting him go could have messed with his comfortable, peaceful transition. I had read Atul Gawande's Being Mortal and philosophically believed in less intervention and more comfort at end of life. This was my dad's philosophy too, but he was still my dad. He was up until a few days ago, he was delighted to tease me and the kids every morning, still loved eggs and Chopin, still raved about Wolf Blitzer, his favorite news reporter the die peacefully at home philosophy hadn't been made real yet. 
in my fear about it not being his time to go, I worked with the healthcare team to experiment for 24 hours by seriously reducing morphine and adding other non-sedating pain relief. Ultimately that failed and brought him much more pain without the gains and we resumed the morphine until he passed a few days later. Somewhere in those sleep deprived couple of days, I remember what I learned when I dropped my son off at daycare. The more comfortable I was in letting him go, the easier it would be for him. A postmortem, it's been some months and now almost a year since my dad died. Mostly I feel really proud that I took care of him at home, walked him through those last days and enabled my kids to safely witness this natural transition. It was very scary to watch him around the clock for days, his breathing sometimes stopping altogether and then starting again. I still have brief moments of doubt. Did I do the right things? I still feel some of that stress in my body and have turned to Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, to work on getting back in sync. I've come to know that if we talk openly about caring for our parents in their final days, we can help our friends and children navigate this painful inevitability. Then I ask, who else has helped a loved one transition at home? How did you work through the fear of doing harm? And how have you taken care of yourself since? Thank you, Karen. Sure. And at the end of the conversation, I'm going to circle back to your questions and okay. turn them around. But I just, I find that so beautifully written and insightful. And, and I'm someone who doesn't have children myself and hasn't yet fully grappled those decisions of caring for a loved one. And yet it just resonated. And I, I shared this with someone who was at the time that I read it going through being at her mother's dead bedside in her mm -hmm. final, final days, that lasted a month and mm -hmm. really resonated with her. I shared it in our newsletter to clients and other individuals and had some feedback there as well, um, which mm -hmm. I just want to read. Someone shared that they had lost their dad recently. And while it wasn't at home, she was relating to the pain and confusion in your work. It's hard to know the best things to do. And we are vulnerable to both believing everything and believing nothing when we're mm -hmm. desperate for answers. Mm -hmm. That's well put. Yeah. Yeah. It's such. I also had an outpouring of people, uh, mostly people who follow Modern Elder Academy reaching out to say, I had a similar experience or I wish I had been able to know some of these things while I was going through this experience because I completely blame myself. Um, being, I, got, I got an outpouring of love, you know, like call me if you need to call me, you know, love and support. It's yeah. really neat. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So Karen, where should we go? What, I think you've had some through your experience had some um, things that have helped you through it and maybe things that you've learned that you'd beyond the blog post want to share. Mm -hmm. I mean, after um, right after his death, um, not only I, I started to have all of these like medical issues, um, like my heart was racing a bunch and I kept getting vertigo. Um, and the, these were new things for me. And um, I, I, prior to that, I wasn't anyone who I wasn't someone who had any health issues. Um, and I just went for workup after workup. And 
Um, interestingly, my ex, who was also very helpful and instrumental in those last days, you know, providing a lot of support as well, he was having the same things, lots of dizziness, heart issues, both of us separately going to cardiologists and getting all the workups and um, going to, you know, for an MRI of the brain and um, just trying to figure out what was happening. Uh, and then it's when I ruled, when really all the main things were ruled out, which took a little while, um, it occurred to me uh, that this was just stress still living in my body from what was pretty scary. You know, I had like, I had used Zoom and a computer in my father's room to just sort of, when I couldn't be at bedside in those last 10 days, just to keep an eye on him. And it's, um, it's a lot for one person, you know, to take in watching someone unconscious, you know, lose breathing and find breathing again, or take, you know, not, you know, take big gasping breaths or, um, you know, be unresponsive and knowing that you're waiting for the end to come. Um, and so once I figured out that this was all really like stress living in my body, I took a week away, you know, a week away from the kids, from everybody went to the water, which is, you know, the, that's my place to sort of help get restored. And I just did a bunch of yoga, stretching, um, something called polyvagal, um, exercises. Um, I read, I reread. Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, um, and just did a lot of body work essentially and breath work to try to get the stress out. And after that, I think I had one, one very minor disease spell after that, and it was really gone. Um, but it was like a person, like I've always known this to be true, like stress can really impact your body in a big way, or um, especially stressors where you feel traumas, where you feel like you can't do something to change the outcome. Um, those are the kind of stressors that can really live in your body. Um, but it was like having the personal experience of it was something really different. Uh, I'm just, I'm glad that part, I'm glad that part's over. <laughs> Were you on your own when you went away? Was, was it a, yeah. something you did on your own? Yeah. yeah something I did on my own. Yeah. Yeah. Did your ex also, was it also stress for him? You said he had this similar. He never found anything else. Um, I, you know, I proposed to him that it was probably stress too, um, because he was not as intimately involved in it all as I was, but fairly close to it. Um, so it, his also just dissipated. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if he took action sort of doing the body work or not, but his resolved itself too. Um, I'm curious about, I think you mentioned that you have siblings and that there was some, it can be hard to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. um, how has, have your relationships with them been? Mm -hmm. So I think like, um, you know, in my work in, um, I've done a lot of work in family therapy and interventions doesn't always mean right that you apply it to your own family um in my family when i was maybe because of culturally maybe because i'm the only girl and the youngest girl um there was like an sort of an expectation that was actually spoken when i was in high school like please never send us to a nursing home you know please take care of us to the best of your ability when we're older and we need help um and you know uh that was sort of my role in the family 
And those roles in the family, um, you know, there can be perks to those and there can be major downsides to those too. And as you, you know, as I got older and I'm working and I have my own friends and my own family, lots of those roles fall to the wayside um, and you become, you know, the per more of the person that you want to be, or, you know, sort of making decisions about who you are, you know, reinventing until your family comes together again to start like for any emergency, but in this case to start planning for the care of an aging parent. Um, and that brings back, you know, the same way that people get stressed out coming together for Thanksgiving <laughs> with their family and they anticipate all the anxious conversations. Um, when you get, when you come together again, there's comforts in like the rituals and the way that you make decisions and the way you do things, cause they're very familiar, but it also brings up all the old roles. And I remember a family therapy professor of mine saying, anytime you go home, you're 15 again. Um, and, you know, I think for a lot of people that rings true. Um, so, uh, I think there was over the years, you know, I cared for my parents for a long time. Um, and over those years, there were definitely ebbs and flows of like, ah, you know, the angsty, like, I can't believe I'm still having this conversation. Um, and the sort of finding new ways to cope with some of those family dynamic stressors or cope with my dad who could be both really charismatic and lovely, but also really irritating. <laughs> um, and uh, I think if I um, look back, I wish that something I had done was to bring my brothers to the table more when that initial decision was being made. There are lots of good um, resources out there for how a family can have that tough conversation of like, who's going to be the care, who's going to manage the finances and a way of sort of divvying up all of the responsibilities that could have made things a lot easier for all of us, because I think it would have taken some of the burden off of me and spread it out a little bit, but it also would have given them the space in the room to help make the decisions um, and feel like they had a place to be involved. Um, when I was in the midst of caregiving, I was designing a training for a place called Generations United. And I was trying to share some of what I've done in my work, but also share some of what I was experiencing, which is, you know, of caring for an elder person and all the family dynamics that come with it can be like a chronic stressor. And chronic stress, like trauma, is really bad for our bodies. You know, just like you have perpetual stress hormones going, which impact all kinds of physical things and also impact your ability to think clearly. Um, so the training that I gave was about how to first calm yourself down, you know, get regulated by deep breathing or however is best, whatever works best for you, but then to also um, help regulate the other person, in this case, my dad or my brothers, so that you can get to the place where you're in relationship and can have a rational conversation about what's happening. To do that, though, you have to sort of be, you know, talking to yourself about what are the roles I was given when I was younger, which one, which parts of those roles are really stressful for me and maybe also for others too, and how can I reframe these or rework these? Um, 
So I did a little bit of that with my brothers, actually. Uh, I had them help me design some of the training. I talked to them. I asked them what they would have preferred. You know, we were already this far down the road and my dad was already close to end of life. Um, but it was nice to just even give a space and an opportunity to have that conversation even later. Um, Thank you for your vulnerability in this. I think you've clearly given it a lot of thought, but it's so easy to fall into the role and and not necessarily think about it. So tell me more about the what what yeah. the conversations were, and then you mentioned resources, which I think you're getting at as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I remember in doing the research for the training. I was digging through some of the um, Facebook groups like um, Working Daughter and you know Sandwich Generation and just looking at some of the content in there, like things that people post. There's so much anger um, from the person who is the primary giver at times, right? I feel like nobody does anything but me. I'm always the one stuck with this burden. Plus my mom and dad mistreat me and they're mean to me. Um, that is such a common theme. And I, um, I was very deliberate about like, I don't want to adopt that script. You know, I made this agreement and I, I continue to have choice about making a decision. Am I going to be the caregiver or can, are we going to find an alternate solution? there's always a possibility for some other solution. Um, Is this what I wanna keep doing? Um, So I was super just careful about that. And my best friend, uh, Julie was so helpful for convincing me to take breaks, you know, like get out of the house. Don't worry about what, you know, your brother's thinking or doing right now, you know, just get yourself, if you're looking for you know, a break or a relief or some fun or a vacation, take it. Um, so I think that is a lot of what I did for myself is like, don't get ascribed to a certain role. I always have the opportunity to change how I'm viewing my situation. Um, I also have the opportunity to ask my brothers for help. Um, it doesn't mean that they'll change or that they'll do something, but me changing the way that I'm operating, you know, families are like a, like a machine and everyone has sort of prescribed roles that they get used to happening in the same way all the time. All it takes is for one person to change the way that they relate or change up their role and it will have an impact on the rest of the system. Um, So I think I tried some of that too at times, like, hey, I need you guys to step in and um, can you chip in and do X, Y, or Z? And um, sometimes they would, and, you know, sometimes they'd be little but meaningful things. Um, They also lived pretty far away. Um, And also, I think I had already really set in stone how things were going to work. My parents were living with me. Um, so I feel, I feel like, you know, sort of the deal was already done. So I can imagine somebody listening might feel like, well, choice is well and good, except that my parents have, since I was a kid expected that I was going to play this role. 
and and what I can see someone saying, I don't have a choice in that, or mm-hmm. you know, I will be. I shouldn't go to this not disinherited, but estranged, maybe, you know, my mm-hmm. parents won't talk to me. Do you have any thoughts for someone that really feels stuck in terms of what choices they they would encourage yeah. what they might think about? I think that um when 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 I get locked into something, a way of believing something, the best way in to help me is when I have someone I trust who loves me and sees me really deeply listen to what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking is the truth. Um, and that that's the type of person that I would be most likely to allow them to poke holes in my current way of thinking. Like, is it really your only choice? And what would happen if, um, would that disastrous thing really happen if you stopped being the primary caregiver or if they went to a nursing home or, you know, if you started work, working full time and you had an aide coming in instead in your place, you know, there are always alternatives. It's just sometimes we get so stressed out or locked in from you know, into our role or into our beliefs that it's hard to let them go. And also sometimes there are secondary gains to the roles that we have too. Um, and so that is a conversation that's hard to have. And again, one that's way more likely to happen with someone you trust, like, are there benefits for you right now in taking care? You know, when I step back from work to like my dad was coming home in a wheelchair, right? He couldn't walk anymore. And I remember talking to a friend like, oh my God, I cannot leave work. Everything is hiring right now. This is not a time where I can step back from work. We have huge initiatives. And, you know, that friend was like, what would your mom have wanted you to do or what's in your heart? And I made that decision to step back from that decision. I ended up having a secondary gain, which was like, I'm at midlife and I have this pause. It coincided with COVID. I have this pause where I can ask myself, am I still in love with my career? Is this what I want to keep doing? Do I want to pivot? I mean, I had like space to do that. That was a secondary gain for me. I think maybe sometimes people feel guilty about having a secondary gain, so they don't want to talk about it, but they hold tightly onto whatever choice they've made. Um, so that's that's another thing I would suggest too, is like, you know, just as an exercise, get super selfish and just name all the things that would be beneficial for you. Um, and then have someone help you brainstorm all the other possible ways to skin that cat <laughs> and, you know, walk through making a different decision if, if needed. Yeah. And just being open to the positive, right? If you're, if you're ingrained in the story of resentment, then it can be hard even to see the, the positive. Yeah. I think. Yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think people also really deeply believe a lot of the messages that they got from their family about who they were. So it's hard when you're in, back in that unit again to coming together to make a plan or even just taking care of a parent. All those old scripts come back up. And if someone hasn't done the work of separating out like well, which parts were true and which parts weren't true and they're buying it all 
and they're keeping it to themselves, that could cause someone to just be stuck in a lot of angst and grief, but really kind of believing that it's true. And so they don't have options. Yeah. Yeah. You said that if you were doing this, if I have this right, if you did this all over again, to, to paraphrase what I understood was like that you would step back a bit more, have more of a family conversation about what path well and you said bring your brothers into more of potentially decision-making roles do you mm -hmm. have any more to add about I mean I can picture a family meeting but how someone might I, I, not even someone but what you would envision if you could step back I guess it was mm -hmm. 17 years ago that you made the decision that they would move yeah. in yeah yes exactly um there, I think that's exactly what I do. I think I would, I did call a family meeting at that time, but it's like, we had already decided what was going to happen. My dad and I, um, so I would throw that plan out <laughs> and instead have my dad call a family meeting, um, and, you know, give everybody sort of these prompts ahead of time. There are resources out there for this too, um, which I can, um, look for and give you for the script for the, um, notes. Great. Um, but to help a family make some decisions about where do we see this going? You know, what, what is most likely going to happen next? How are we handling at each phase and who is responsible for what? Um, that, that is definitely something I wish I had done back then. And I think my brothers have also expressed like, Oh, it would have been nice if there was more room to sort of be at the table, even if, um, even if they would have decided like, because of our distance and because of our careers, we can't help in any significant ways. Um, I still think it would have been better for them to have the opportunity to, to at least say that, you know, to, for them to vote for nursing home, you know, or something like that. How would your parents react? And what, where I'm coming from is recognizing that I come from this attorney lens and when I work with clients, oftentimes it might be an adult child that's coming to us to talk about long-term care. And my role is in the, like, how do you qualify for Medicaid? You yes. know, I have this one side of things, but also yeah. powers of attorney. And, and I have to be so mindful of the, the elder older generation as my client and being mm -hmm. and being very careful about who's at the table and yet I can also see that role where myself or another third party could play to open up those conversations mm -hmm. um but but I'm wondering yeah how your parents how do you think that they might have would they have been open to more discussions about different roles and options Mm-hmm. Good question. I don't know. I mean, they had it sort of set in their head for a long time that I would be the caregiver. But I also think they would have been really open to letting go of that idea and trying on something else. Um, I don't think we ever got super creative about what the other options could have looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we saw an estate attorney, um, back then that was so, so helpful. I mean, there were also lessons learned there, like about a five-year look back and how to protect, you know, my dad saving his little nest egg for so long, only to have it be at risk, 
you know, when she needed care because she had Alzheimer's and there came a point where we could not take care of her at home anymore just because of the overnight. I was wondering, actually, I was, I was thinking, mm -hmm. wow, you guys did, (laughs) but okay. No, that, yeah, that we had Mm -hmm. to, um, she needed care. Like she was always trying to get, we had multiple locks on the windows and doors and she would wake up in the middle of the night and not who know who my dad was in the bed next to her and um, think that my kids were her kids it was tri- really hard. Yeah. yeah. I bet that was hard on your kids and to everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were so little that I don't think they remember so much of it anymore. They remember the good stuff, which is good. What else, Karen, was there? So we've talked about some of the pre kind of decision making. Mm-hmm. What other? Uh, I think, you know, I've talked some about like the body work and I, um, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, if you can recognize your, like in the moment, start to recognize how you're feeling and where that feeling is in your body. Um, it can get you a long way to being able to then, um, resolve the feeling and be able to talk again. So like when we, like I was saying, I think that especially end of life care is a chronic stressor. Um, and there's also this disenfranchised loss is what it's called where, or ambiguous loss where your parents there, but not there. And it's not yet time to like call everybody to say, I'm hurting. I need support. Like you would when someone dies, there's this long period where you don't you know, you haven't brought people in to surround you yet. Um, so there is, uh, there's a, a man called Howard Stevenson out of University of Pennsylvania. He does a lot of work around um, stress and trauma in relation to uh, racial stressors. And he taught this technique that is really universally applicable, um, which is like, when you're faced with a chronic stressor, let's say, oh my God, my brothers and my dad are all putting me in this role again, and my dad is dying, and I have my kids, you know, to take care of, and you know, I have a job. Um, that when you're feeling the stress in your body, for me, it would be anxiety, and it happens right in the center of my chest. For me to ask myself, on a scale of one to 10, how bad is the stress right now? Or whatever the feeling is, sadness, anger. And let's say I, it's a seven. And then you take some located in your body for me, set chest, take some deep belly breaths and try to open like a hole in the center of wherever that big feeling is. And once you regulate your body that way, that gives you access to be able to think more clearly again, because when you're so stressed or angry or sad, your cognition really goes offline because you're in fight or flight. But if you can identify it in your body, take some deep breaths and calm your body down, you have the ability to ask yourself then like, what's happening right now that is upsetting me? Um, And how can I, what's my, what's better self-talk? So instead of saying, I feel so guilty that, you know, um, that, that he fell and broke his tip fib. Maybe I didn't move him from the chair in the right way. Um, instead, you can work on replacing the thought that's causing all the stress. You know, um, I have done so much. I have done the best I could, you know, anything to replace those thoughts. 
And it also puts you in a better position than to talk with other people who might be, you know, in your eyes, part of what's stressing you out. So there's some nice techniques out there that are like bottom brain up, like regulate yourself first and then be in relationship and then you can do your thinking um, that I know were helpful to me in walking through those last days and, and the days after um, that I think aren't universally known. I think when people try to talk when they're super upset and then we make mistakes when we do that or we have regrets when we try to have a big conversation where we're really, really upset. Um, so this is a way in of like, you know, calming your body down first so that you can get your thinking back online. Yeah. Thinking during those periods also... When I, I was with my grandfather when he died and his daughter, I don't think she couldn't sleep just because she wanted to be there at yeah. the end. So I think I'm just thinking like that would have something to play in it, too, because when you're not rested, yeah, you're not. And I'm not saying she did <laughs> like there was any. I'm not saying there was any mm -hmm. behavioral or anything, but just just thinking of that awareness of right, if you're the stress and then if on top of that you're not sleeping and then for uh, sure yeah just just recognizing I think I try and avoid emotion <laughs> so, yeah. so that's, that's hard for me easier. just to, yeah, yeah it <laughs> works real well let me tell you but um, yeah um yeah that, that technique works for identifying emotion too because you're really starting with you can probably identify what's happening in your body. Like, oh my God, my shoulders are really tight or I have this feeling in the pit of my stomach. Mm -hmm. And if you pay attention to it, um, you're more likely to be able to link it up with whatever the thought is yeah. over time. Yeah. Well, thank you. And you mentioned a name that we'll link to as well. And I think we've had this discussion that I had mentioned Hoffman process. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of it? That. Yeah. Okay. I uh, think, no, I, yeah. I think only from you. I heard about yeah, it. All of this ties in. So I'll just put a, <laughs> that's a, a big time and uh, commitment, but um, I'll link as well to something I did because Hoffman is a week to a lot of the, what comes out of it is focusing on your patterns that you develop from your parents. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about roles in my mind, I'm also thinking of, um, what, what patterns we pick up mm -hmm, right. from a young age. And yeah. And then we pick partners to that replay those patterns <laughs> <laughs> and can have like this yeah. great opportunity to resolve the problem to the pattern yeah. or not and fight like cats and dogs. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> And there we talked about tuning in with our like true self and emotions and, and figuring out kind of what's the authentic us versus what's the, we did this because it's how we survived as a young child. Mm -hmm. Yep. Interesting. Neat. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I, we had, um, I think you said you work right now in your career on a lot of uh, multi-generational and getting that right, bringing in mentorship to schools. Yeah, in and my school work, yes. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if perhaps that's come in because you really grew 
your kids grew up in a multi-generational house, it sounds like. Did that play into some of what you're interested in now in your career as well? It probably did. I'm guessing it was sort of like built in culturally to our family. So it wasn't even like all of us living together and spending so much time with each other was not even a thought. It was just built into culturally to our family. Um, But it probably did have an influence. What the field I chose definitely was influenced from my dad. He was a child psychiatrist and he opened the first um, children's, but really family therapy um, inpatient hospitals for kids in Milwaukee. Um, So I think I learned you know, I got, I gained, I got a lot of interest in working with kids and particularly in family systems from him. Um, but yeah, the intergenerational, multi-generational house and relationship, definitely a staple in my life. That's interesting. Yeah. Anything else you want to dive into before I ask about MEA? Uh, I don't think so. All right. Well, do you want to talk just a bit? Because I know you did MEA recently, I think, since the mm-hmm. blog post. Mm-hmm. And it's something I will do one day. And I yes. think that others might enjoy hearing about it. Do you want to share a bit about what it is? And Sure, yeah. So um, the Modern Elder Academy is a um, place in Baja Sur, Mexico, but also they have new campuses in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, and it's like a um, week-long retreat with expert guides where you come together with other middle-aged people. Um, and middle-aged is really broadly defined there. It's really people experiencing sort of like a midlife transition or have come to a pause or are looking for their purpose again and having and struggling to find it. So um there are different themes to the weeks. Some of them are just like the staple core. Um, the one I went to was big business, big business and big life in big life in midlife. Um, and it's really like this opportunity to say, okay, I've adopted all of these ways of being mindsets, friends, jobs, um, obligations by midlife. And it's time for a big edit. Um, I, it's time to like, let go of some of the ways of relating or identities that I carry that are too heavy or don't work for me anymore and adopt new ones. Um, and there's all these exercises in like better listening, better communication. Um, and in this workshop, there were lots of stuff around business and finding purpose and applying that to creating a business. Um, but the, uh, the real magic is in the community. I mean, you come together with 20 other people every day at you know 10 a.m. for circle. You see how everyone's feeling. You feel like influenced and moved by the other people in the group. Like that level of ritual and the level of beauty and hospitality in this in these locations, which are like the most beautiful, you know, retreats with like gorgeous, healthy food and. <laughs> Um, right on the beach for for the Mexican one um, with these guides that are just like fantastic listeners like they call themselves first class noticers um, that are just able to sit with they don't challenge don't give you advice they just listen and then ask these like um, questions about what's possible 
for you next. And you do this in a group of sort of like-minded people and come out the other side with a group um, for support and accountability and check-ins um, to sort of make moves on whatever you took some time away to decide, you know, what you were altering. It's incredible. It was a great experience. Sounds like it. I'm excited. Yay. <laughs> <Someday>. <laughs> Highly recommended. Yeah. Great. And then I wanted to circle back, Karen, and you may have answered this. You may not have anything to add, which is fine. But uh, you asked in your blog post uh, a number of set of questions at the end, including how have you taken care of yourself since, meaning mm-hmm. since since losing someone? Yeah. Um, and is there anything else you would add, how you've taken care of yourself? Uh, I mean, first it was all those medical appointments <laughs> and then, right. <laughs> and then it was the week and it that was a real thing. It was like, I was overdue for a mammogram and pap smear and like general wellness, you know, because of COVID too. But, um, I also tore my meniscus, you know, which I was a combination of COVID and caretaking. And, um, so I had a lot of physical like things that I needed to do, which I did, um, the vital one was taking that week away by myself and doing some of that body work, the polyvagal stuff. And, um, and then I think I just like expanded my group again. I really couldn't go anywhere. I was really bound because if any time I left the house, even for a walk around the block, I had to know that somebody was watching grandpa. Um, so having that freedom again to go out of the house at any time without a plan um that was great self-care um you know I started dating again which was lovely I met a lovely human that I adore (laughs) that's still in my life um uh I think I mean those were the main ways that I took care that I needed to take care of myself afterwards and I think also like telling myself and reminding myself what a great job we all did. Like the day after he passed with my kids, I was, and my ex, I was like raising our fists in the air. Like we did it. You know, we had, we helped grandpa die at home, which is what he wanted to do. We helped him transition in the way that he wanted to transition. And we all bore it. It's hard. It was hard. And we did it. Like we celebrated. Um, Cause the normal thing to do is like throw a whole bunch of medical interventions and stick them in the hospital. And then he would have died in a way that he absolutely did not want to die rather than just like accepting it's time. It's his time to go. He's been ready to go actually for quite some time and we can manage doing this at home. So I think that mindset and like thinking of it as like a, a, a great human accomplishment was another big piece of self-care that is amazing I love it and I hope that that empowers more to to celebrate and you were able to do that because you knew his wishes yeah so that is such a plug for people talking to your to your family even when you're younger or especially when you're younger Right. Those conversations of what you want that to look like and 
um, that means you have to face that you're going to die someday. Right. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> we don't plan for what yeah. we don't want. Yeah. Yeah. Some MEA person said that to me. Hard to plan <laughs> for what we don't mm-hmm. want. That's yeah. where those worksheets come in handy. Like, hey, we're supposed to have this conversation. The estate attorney told us to. Let's sit yes. down and answer these questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Blame somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> a great, great way to get into the conversation. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I know on the flip side, I've talked to a number of people that actually would want to be in an assisted living home or nursing home and actually not at home. Mm-hmm. And, and yet I've heard of a number of stories where in, as they age that flips. And so they might say, no, 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 I'm mm-hmm. not ready. Keep me home. And so I think that's another time where it's important, you know, early on to say, Hey, I'm comfortable with you putting me, <laughs> finding a good, good place for me mm-hmm. um, and listen to me now and not my, um, not Future when I start self. to get dementia. Yeah. Or something. Oh yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Karen. Yeah. Thank you. Um, thank you for doing this for people. I mean, it's just like, like I said, there's like this huge need as people live longer and as like baby boomers age but yet like we haven't caught up with sort of mainstream culture in terms of like being okay with death and what it's like to have someone die at home and what happens to a person when they die at home and the people around them and I'm just grateful to you for offering something that gives people all kinds of angles at this process yeah yeah I appreciate you. Something else I think Chip is involved with as well, going back to that of different, different kinds of intergenerational communities. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's something as a human without children that I'm, I'm intrigued by myself Mm -hmm. of what's that going to look like. I don't, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you tremendously. It's been so enjoyable. I'm sure other will enjoy as well. Yay. Thanks. That's all for this week. You can find show notes for this show and prior episodes and future episodes at lizsmithlaw.com. And if you're interested in scheduling a meeting with us to find out what your next step would be for your estate planning, visit us at bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Again, that's bit.ly slash mygiftfromlsl. Or find the link at lizsmithlaw.com. We look forward to seeing you again right here, same place, same time, two weeks from now. Thank you so much.